Well, I, this morning I want to continue, like I said, in this series of uh, Make Your Mark. And, and uh, uh, just as a reminder, don't forget we had our, um, I don't know where it's at, but we have a, uh, uh, a little laminated card for this next, this new year. And uh, we have a verse for every um, month that we want to memorize together because the theme for this year is God's Word, Our Unshakable Foundation. And even on our sign, we have out there building upon the foundation of God's Word. And that's what we believe here that is important. It's uh, not uh, what I think or what anybody else thinks. It's what God thinks and what He has already spoken to. And so we want to build our foundation upon that. And so our first verse was Isaiah 40, verse 8. The, ga- the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. And uh, we want to be putting that to our memory in the next month, beginning uh, next week or tomorrow, actually, in Matthew twenty four thirty five, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's what Jesus said. And so we want to be putting these uh, memory verses to our memory, and hopefully by the end of 2016, you'll have 12 verses in your heart, in your mind, that you can call up any time you need to. And if you need one of those cards, there should be some left over on the way out. Um, but we've we've done this little series and just a way of kind of catching up where we've been. Uh, the first week we started in Psalm 1 and we talked about kind of starting right. And we talked about how there's only two ways, two paths, one that's righteous, one that's not, um, one that will end up in heaven in eternity, one that will end up in hell. There's no middle ground there. And we went over that. And um, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at biblical principles for effective ministry. And we turned our hearts to Matthew chapter 10. And we looked at basically the first 15 verses there. And uh, this was, remember, the time when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples. And this was uh, before anything was established. He had spent time with them. He had trained them. And so now it was time for them to go out on their first, uh, you might say, maiden mission voyage. And uh, he took them and he called them aside. And he wanted to share with them some basic biblical principles um, as they went out. And today we want to kind of continue in that, in that, same, that same venue, that same direction. But I think it's important that maybe we, we take a, a, a step back, okay, and uh, just remember um, that before we are sent, we have to follow. And we've been talking about how he sent them out the last couple of weeks, and the Lord kind of put on my heart, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe you jumped a step here. <laughs> because before you can be sent, we need to follow. So today I want to briefly look at what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, and I want to do that in kind of uh, two ways. Um, first of all, I want to help us kind of remember that um, when we look at the Bible, okay, especially in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's God kind of taking us along the path of history. And a lot of times in, 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 in the Old Testament, even between verses, you'll have hundreds of years sometimes. I mean, it just kind of skips over and jumps to the next several hundred years. 
And I always like the times when God slows everything down. And he says, okay, I want you to see something here. I'm going to focus on maybe one individual. Uh, I'm going to focus on somebody who's maybe unlikely to be focused upon. And uh, you're going to zoom in on him. And you're going to look at maybe some conflict that's threatening or maybe he gives a detailed account of how things were resolved the way he wanted them to be resolved. And so, as we kind of introduce our message today, I want you to turn to the book of Judges. In the Old Testament, the book of Judges. And we're going to be looking at mainly Judges chapter 6, just an introduction here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but we're going to kind of relate this story to our hearts because it kind of sets up what happens in the New Testament. And so this is the account of, uh, in Judges, of Gideon's battle with the Midianites. And uh, it's just one of those amazing stories that you probably remember listening to in, in Sunday school as a child. And we have to remember, we have to put ourselves back in this time frame the Israelites were being constantly persecuted and plagued by their enemies. And in this instance, it was the Midianites. But it wasn't just the Midianites. It was another host of nations that came alongside the Midianites and say, yeah, you know what? We feel the same way about these Israelites as you do. So let's join forces and we're going to go against these people. And so they had all these hostile nations, Israel did, turning against them. And God's answer was to focus on one guy, one regular guy. I mean, he was just like you and I. He was just a regular guy. His name was Gideon. And he wanted Gideon to lead this army against all of their enemies. You say, okay, that sounds reasonable. This guy must have been, you know, somebody that could lead an army. Wrong. When you look at Judges chapter 6, this was an ordinary man. Um, He was so ordinary, ordinary that the angel sent a messenger from God. And when he spoke to Gideon, if you read the text here in Judges chapter 6, we find that Gideon was in the process of actually living out his cowardice. He was being a coward, not a warrior. Why do you say that? Well, it tells us that he was threshing wheat. You say, well, what's so cowardice about that? Well, he was doing it inside his wine press. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, usually they would thresh wheat out in the courtyard. They would have a big thresh mill and and they would go out there and they would do it. But where was he doing? He was doing it in the confines of his wine press. Why? Because he was worried about the enemy attacking him and his family. And he was just being a coward. He wasn't willing to face the enemy. He was hiding in his house. And so the angel comes to him and he was so afraid of being seen by the enemy. Here he is secretly threshing his wheat inside his wine press, which must have been, uh, you know, kind of an unreasonable task, uncomfortable and inefficient, but that's all right. And the angel greeted him with this Word, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. <laughs> and you can just see Gideon stopping, going, excuse me? <laughs> Are you talking to me? Mighty warrior? 
And you can almost hear Gideon's kind of chuckle to himself. I mean, maybe the angel laughed too. We don't know. We're not told. But Gideon answers the angel as many of us would. And it's found there in in Judges chapter 6, verses 13 to 15. And here's kind of a, a loose paraphrase of those verses. Hey, if God is with me, Mr. Angel, then why are all these horrible things happening to me? We're kind of at the end of our rope here. Look at us. We're hiding in a wine press because we're afraid of the enemy. In case you didn't notice, the, my family happens to be the weakest around here. And what's more, I'm the weakest in my family. <laughs> so you must be speaking to the wrong person. You must be looking for someone else. And, I, and as I read those verses and I began to kind of think about that, I thought, you know, isn't it interesting how we always feel certain that God has the wrong man or the wrong woman whenever he's recruiting us? <laughs> When he's recruiting somebody else, it's like, oh, yeah, go for it, brother. But when he taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to do this. So I thought, oh, I've got the wrong person. That's how Gideon felt. Um, and the whole time, God is thinking, no, you know what? You're exactly who I have in mind for this task. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 14, the angel of the Lord turned to Gideon and said something very important. He says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? That's very key to our understanding. Go in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? Um, You remember the last two messages that we've dealt with in Matthew chapter 10. We were looking at some of these principles that Jesus wanted to share with his disciples before they went out on their first mission. They were being sent out for the first time. And do you remember his instructions? They're in, in Matthew chapter 10. I'll just read them for you in verses 9 and 10. Here's what Jesus told his disciples as they were going out. Acquire no gold or silver or copper in your belts. No bag for your journey, no two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Bottom line, what was Jesus telling them? You're going out on a mission trip, but you know what? You're not taking anything with you. You're not taking a thing. You're not taking any luggage. You're not taking any money. You're not taking any food. I mean, stop and think about that. No money, no baggage, no extra clothes, no change of shoes, nothing. No food. And they're going out for the very first time. I mean, think of it this way. Can you imagine if someone, say a wealthy individual, called you and your wife and said, you know what? The Lord's blessed me. I want to bless you. So, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you on a two-week vacation. Most of you probably be pretty good with that, right? I mean, yeah, you can use a two-week vacation. And, you know, I'm going to take care of everything for you. Sounds pretty good. There's only one condition. The condition is you can't take anything. You can take your ID and the clothes you have on. You can't take anything else. And you'd probably go, hmm, this is interesting. I can't take anything? Nothing. What about my wallet? No, I can't take your wallet. 
No money? No money. Well, I mean, we're going on a trip. I mean, you got to take baggage, luggage, no luggage, no baggage. I mean, okay, we got clothes on, but we're going to need change, no, no change of clothes. No snacks for the trip. No phone, no computer. No personal items of any kind. No toothbrush, no toothbrush, no toothpaste, no underarm deodorant. No hairspray, no makeup. Right there, that'd probably be a deal breaker for most of you women, but that's okay. That's fine, I'm staying home. You cannot take anything with you. What would you have to do? You would have to place your trust, you would have to place your faith literally in the person who is what? Sending you on that vacation. That somehow... You would have to believe that they're going to have your needs met. That somehow your provisions are going to be provided for you. That would be a hard thing for many of us to do. Even if we kind of believed that, we'd still be wondering, okay. (laughs) See, that's what Jesus was doing with his followers. That's what his disciples were to understand about Christ. That their needs were going to be taken care of by not themselves, but by the one who is sending them. See, and that's the same for us today, beloved. If God is sending us, if God is calling us, if God wants us to be involved in ministry, don't you think honestly that he already knows what you have? Don't you think that he already knows what you're in need of? Don't you think he already knows how you're gifted? Don't you think he already knows what you need to accomplish the task that he's called you to do? Well, let's get back to Gideon's story. So Gideon, being obedient, he goes to Israel, the nation of Israel, and says, look, guys, we're going into a battle. I'm supposed to lead you into battle. Get everybody together. He got together 32,000 men. Unfortunately, he was still way outnumbered by the the Midianites and their alliances. I mean, this wasn't even a a force that could put a dent in what was coming against them. And so Gideon, naturally, as the leader of the army, trying to be obedient to what God's called him to do, tried to figure out, where else am I going to find some men? I got every guy that's in Israel. What what else are we going to do here? Look at what happens over in, in Judges chapter 2, verse 2. Or Judges chapter 7, excuse me, verse 2. Here's what God says to Gideon. Now granted, he's looking for more guys to, to join forces, right? Um, you know what, Gideon? You have too many men for me to deliver Midian in their hands, into their hands. You have too many men. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. You're asking these guys to go up a force that's many times greater than them, and they've conjured up every guy. They come, they have 32,000, and God says, now you got too many, Gideon, sorry. We're going to kind of take care of some of these guys. See, Gideon is doing what? He's coming face to face with how God does things. And, and what I want you to see is the way God does things is not necessarily the way we do things. <laughs> Whether it's in our own personal lives, whether it's in ministry, 
He does things kind of backwards. He does things upside down, you might say, in relationship to the way we think things should be done. And so as Gideon tried not to choke on his breakfast, God set about reducing the size of Israel's army because he had too many men. First of all, in the story there, it tells us that Gideon was to ask the soldiers, if anyone here is afraid, put up your hand. If you're afraid to go into battle. Because if you're afraid to go into battle, you can go home. Wow. Now remember, this is an army that's far outnumbered and probably even outskilled by the enemy. So 22,000 men said, wow, is he serious? I'm out of here. You know, I'm not planning on dying today. I'm going home. They left. I mean, couldn't you just imagine being giddy and watching them walk away going, wait, 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 God, you know, did you know it was going to be this many people? This many men are just going to turn their back and run? God, you must have underestimated how many of these guys were going to be afraid. Can't we change the parameters here? I mean, let's make up something else. No. In fact, God said to Gideon, you still have too many guys. (laughs) You still have too many to fight. And then he told Gideon, the story goes on, take the remaining 10,000 men down to the river to drink. You know, they're going into battle. They have to be hydrated. So take them down to the river, let them, let them get a good filling of water. But here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I want you to kind of stand behind them up where maybe you can see all of them. And I want you to watch them. And I want you to watch for the ones who bring the water up to their mouth, cupped in their hand. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, some guys, they probably went down, they stuck their head in the stream, gulp, 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 gulp. And other guys probably went over and bent down and kind of looking around and, you know, they're doing one of these deals. Why? Because they're watchful. They're not trusting their, their surroundings. They're saying, hey, there's an enemy out there that wants to kill us. They would be watchful. They'd be alert. They'd be the ones who were prepared. They're the ones who were aware of any potential enemy ambush. And so God says, you know what? Keep those men, the men that cup the water to their hand. The other ones you can send home. (laughs) Really? Now he's got a few hundred men. But there were only the bravest. There were only those who were wholeheartedly committed to the battle. And finally, God was ready to use these men to accomplish his task. And the story goes on, and you can read about it. We're not going to read all the details, but in a daring night raid, God gave Gideon's army, a few hundred men, a stunning victory over all the Midianites, over all their enemies. And that's covered there in Judges 7. See, it's stories like this about Gideon, about this army that he put together, that God put together, that it makes it abundantly and repeatedly clear that you know what god can do more with a few committed folks than he can with thousands who were following him half-heartedly and so today i want us to look and understand that god is still looking 
around to see who he really has on his side. And he's still seeking those men, those women, who will follow him with total abandonment, against all odds, without questioning his directions or his motives or his methods. See, God is looking for true followers, true disciples, who are willing to think and to act according to God's sometimes upside-down, backwards strategy. I would even go on to say that God is looking for churches. He's looking for pastors who are ready, no matter how small their congregations may be, no matter how poor their people may be or how old their buildings may be. He's looking for those individuals who want to do things his way so that they can turn their cities upside down for Christ. And he asked the question, am I not sending you, Gideon? So go in the strength you have. Now, let's time warp all the way to the New Testament. Over to Luke. Chapter 14. We have... The New Testament church... It's going to be established. And in many ways, when you think of the New Testament church, the first church really found itself in a situation similar to Gideon's. Think about it. They were completely outnumbered. Their task appeared, let's say, ridiculous, if not impossible. What do you want us to do? There's 12 of them. We're supposed to take this gospel to every nation? Are you serious? We're to make the whole world believe in this Jesus who came and died and was resurrected? I mean, he's not even around here anymore. He left. He's in heaven. And we're supposed to get the world to follow a man they can't even see? And so... We can see how these early believers succeeded in their mission. How were they able to do this? It's not because they were mighty. It's not because they were numerous. It's not because they were brilliant or they had some brilliant strategy or they were wonderful thinkers or they had some great marketing guy on their side. None of that was in place. I mean, who were these guys? They were a bunch of fishermen. A tax collector. I mean, you know, they weren't the lofty in society. I mean, even the disciples who were fishermen. I mean, every time you read about them in the Bible, they're either not catching fish or mending their nets. So, and that was their profession, right? So they really didn't even do that well without God's help. But because they were true followers, because they were true disciples, they were true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they knew that they could only take directions from him and from God, they were able to transform the world in which we live through the power of the gospel, through the power of God. Well, I want to look at some of the first statements of Jesus concerning what is required in order for us to become his Followers to become his children, become disciples of Christ. 
Here in Luke, there was a huge crowd at this point who was following Jesus. I mean, huge. Um, He became very popular with the common people in that day. Because they, they really understood his message. You know, even today, you know, when, when you, you have all this political stuff going on. When you hear some politicians speak about certain things, boy, they just resonate with your heart. You're like, yes! That's what was going on in Jesus' day. People were resonating with what Jesus was telling them. And there was all these people who were following him. They appreciated Jesus for basically popping a hole in the religious establishment and all the gas went out. I mean, he exposed them time and time again because they took advantage of the people, the common people usually. So they appreciated him for that. They, they appreciated him for, for revealing the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders to be hypocrites because that's what they were. And he also was appreciated because when he taught about the kingdom, it wasn't a kingdom for the elite religious establishment. It was a kingdom that was available to anyone. It was a kingdom that was available to all. And that was foreign to them. And so the common people of Jesus' day truly were attracted to him. So you had all these people who were listening intently to what Christ was saying every time he opened his mouth. I mean, these were the Jesus fans. They loved him. And when things are going well, most of us would be inclined to give the crowd what they want. I mean, you know, when you have people who are in support of you and are following you, Our flesh wants that number to increase. (laughs) We're glad that that, that people are behind us. The disciples with Jesus were glad that all these people were following them. They wanted them to stay. They were probably trying to think, well, how are we going to manage all these people? Now we got this, all these people, and we we got to manage them so that that they can stay on our side. But at this point, Jesus does something totally opposite of what you or I would probably have done. Just when you think Jesus would be wanting to gather this army of followers, he made what what I call a Gideon move. (laughs) He did something that's just kind of out in left field. He decided to say some very hard, some very harsh things to those who were just adoring him. And those sayings are still there for anyone who would one day follow him, including you and I. In this text of scripture we're going to read right now, verses 25 to 35 of Luke 14, you're going to see three times in these couple verses, you're going to read the words, cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. And that's Jesus speaking. And what he's saying is you must do these things or you can't follow me. So let's look at our our text, and I'll read it for you. You can follow along in your Bibles. Luke 14, verse 25. 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, and he said to them, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, there it is, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, just look at those words and let them sink in. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has had enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This Man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34 says, salt is good, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, these words that I just read for you are some of the the most solemn, probably the hardest words that ever fell off and came out of Jesus' lips. And every one of them is what you can call an upside-down statement. It doesn't fit the logic. I'm sure his disciples were sitting there listening to him thinking, what is he doing I mean, he's he's basically going to discourage all these people from following him. And those statements are oftentimes, I would venture to say, probably more oftentimes than not, misunderstood by even those within the church. And the multitudes that were following Jesus, basically, that number shrank. It shrank drastically. It shrank immediately. Because these were radical, provocative statements that boy, people aren't going to listen to this. This guy's a madman. They were disappointed. Because they had an image of what God was going to be like. And they had an image of what Jesus was supposed to be like as the Messiah. And all of a sudden, everything fell apart. See, some of this crowd wanted to be dazzled by miracles. Because Jesus did miracles all the time. And so they were there to watch this sideshow, this freak show, if you will. Oh, who's he going to heal next? Others, probably just practically, maybe were some of the poor people and thought, hey, this guy gives out free food. Remember, he just fed 5,000, he fed 4,000. Let, let's go, to, go hang around him. At least we'll get a meal out of this deal. Some were maybe radical. 
political type. They say, hey, this guy, look at all the people following him. Now he's going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and he's going to take control and kick those guys out who have been taking advantage of us and we're going to have victory, man. This is, this is the way to go. He's going to establish his kingdom on earth. He even said it a couple times. He's going to be the king and we're going to be the part of his kingdom. Even his own disciples believed that, didn't they? But they had the wrong idea. They, they thought it was going to happen right then, right now. That's why when Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. But uh, the thing you have to understand is that I'm going to end up dying on a cross. And the disciples are just going, uh, does not compute. <laughs> I mean, how does that establish your kingdom on earth? What, if you die, I mean, who's left, you know? And they're all looking at each other like, who's next? I mean, you know, they were a little slow, but they weren't that slow. They got the picture. I think there was others of this crowd who simply were following a celebrity. (laughs) They were looking at Jesus' personality and thought, wow, this is kind of fun. It's kind of fun when a celebrity comes to town, isn't it? I mean, if you can be out in the crowd, oh, yeah, I saw him. I saw the president, or I saw this movie star, or I saw this person, or I, you know, I know somebody that saw somebody. And, and sometimes we live off that stuff. You know, we don't even meet the person, but we know somebody that met him, and it becomes the topic of our conversation for days. I mean, we have that problem, I believe, in the church today even. I think, unfortunately, there's many congregations, especially in our country, who are simply following may I even dare say worshiping a leader, a mere man, a celebrity personality who oftentimes may even be devoid of any moral fabric whatsoever. But you know what? Their lack of biblical qualifications for leadership within the church as prescribed in the New Testament is simply overlooked because they're such a gifted communicator or because they have such a magnetic personality or they can bring so much money to the thing. Brothers and sisters, we need to be sure to keep our eyes on Christ and Christ alone, not on any human being. Well, a lot of these people couldn't receive this message that Jesus dished out because they were not thinking in terms of kingdom terms. They were thinking in ordinary terms. They weren't thinking about kingdom principles. They were thinking about their own principles. And just as with Gideon, God was willing to thin the ranks, just like he did with Gideon. Because he really wanted only those who were truly committed to him. You know, he wasn't interested and he's still not interested in a big crowd. That doesn't float God's boat. He's not interested in personal popularity or celebrity status. Well, here comes Jesus along and he says, you know what? I want you in very clear terms to understand what it means to be a follower of mine, to be a disciple of mine, what it means to come after me. This is what I'm really after. You know what? Are you willing to do that? Great. If you're not, go home. That was his message. And his disciples probably just sat there with their mouths open going, okay, what are you doing? 
See, so often people tend to misinterpret the meaning behind these four qualifications that we're going to look at this morning. Either we make them too literal, like you walk out of here saying, oh, yeah, you know, I don't like my mom anyway, so the pastor just said, now I got to hate her. So, hey, that's great. No. Or, you know what, boy, I can't even so much as own a pillow. So I got to, you know, have a big garage sale. I mean, that's, that's not what this is teaching. Or we swing to the other extreme and we kind of water it down to the point where if we have a, a tough boss at work or a tough day at work, you know, that's our idea of bearing the cross. And none of that is in play here. As we study these principles for discipleship from this passage out of Luke, it's important that we interpret them not just according to Jesus' own words, but we need to interpret them also in light of other scripture, in light of Jesus' own example for us. Remember, this isn't something that's radical. It was radical to the people who heard it, but this was just what Jesus expected. This was the beginning part. See, don't buy into the lie that some people teach today that say, you know what? You can come to Jesus and be saved. And, you know, and then if you're, if you're really gung-ho and you really want to make it, then you become his disciple. No, that's not true. You don't see that taught in Scripture anywhere. If you're going to come to Christ for salvation... You're going to come to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You don't get to pick between the two. You don't get to say, well, you know, I'm going to come to Jesus for the benefits of salvation, but I'm still going to do my own thing. (laughs) I want to live the way I want to live. I'm not ready to make him my Lord, we hear the word that people say today. The last time I checked, Jesus is Lord. We don't have to make him Lord. We simply acknowledge his lordship in our lives. So we need to understand that this is not some radical behavior. This is not some religious freak that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about, if you're going to follow me, this is normal. This is baseline. This is what every believer's life should look like. Well, what's the first thing? Quickly. The first requirement, he says there in verse 26, if anyone does not come to me and does not hate his own father, his mother, his wife, his children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The first requirement is that you love God more than anyone else. I think all of us here in this room are mature enough to understand that Jesus isn't teaching us. He's not requesting us to hate our loved ones. That goes against scripture. We know that he loved his own mother. Because while he was on the cross, he was concerned for her welfare. So he instructed John to take care of her. Once more, the Bible tells us over and over and over and over again that we're to love all others, including even our enemies. So Jesus isn't telling us to hate. Well, what does he mean here? If you turn to Matthew 12, you can see kind of how this plays out in Jesus' life. In Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50, it tells us here, and it sheds a little light on this. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, he had a crowd once again, 
His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, hey, Jesus, you know, you interrupted him. Your brother and your mothers, or your, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you, Jesus. And he replied to them, and he says this, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he points to his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, as Jesus was often prone to do, he took an opportunity here to teach. He took advantage of it. His family's arrival, the request to see him, it was going to interrupt what he was doing as far as God's will at that particular time. It was an interruption. Notice what it says. While Jesus was still talking to the, the crowd. We don't know how long he talked to them. But it must have been a while. Maybe his family grew impatient. And they grabbed somebody that was lingering in the doorway. Because everybody couldn't fit in there. Because there was always a crowd when Jesus taught. And they said, hey, can, you, can you let him know we're out here? His mother and his brothers are waiting for him. We want to talk to him. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to convey a very important principle. Jesus made the simple point that says, you know what? My father's will, God's will is more important than my family. Now that was a radical statement. That my spiritual family, which includes those who do the father's will, is my first priority even above my own earthly blood family. I mean, that is a radical statement to make. So why did Jesus use the word hate, you might say? Well, the word here is used, and it really indicates the opposite of love. Would you agree? I mean, those are two polarized things, love, hate. And it was a method that people would use back in that culture. A lot of times they still use it today in the Orient. Um, to, to, to mark and denote a sharp contrast. Jesus was essentially saying this. If you want to be my disciple, your love for others must be, must seem like hatred in comparison for your love for me. You could retranslate that verse and say this. If you're going to be my disciple, you must love God more than anyone or anything else. Your love for Jesus must be so passionate, so profound that No other love even comes close to that. So why is this a requirement for discipleship? Why is this a requirement for those who are going to follow Christ? Because Jesus Christ understands the close relationships. He understands our desire to please our families. He understands that, you know what? That desire to please our families could even hinder our commitment and our service to God. A lot of times you hear of people who come to Christ and they're excited and they're genuinely, it seems they're genuinely saved. And they, boy, they just, they feel God's called them to do something. And they start down that path. And somewhere along the line, they, they talk to their family about it. And maybe their family's filled with a bunch of unbelievers. And they love their family. They want their family to be happy. 
So you know what? We, you know, we, we, they discourage that. You know, we, you know, we don't want you to go to that Bible school. We don't want you to go to that Christian school. You, know, you need to continue in your education. I mean, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. But, you know, I really feel God's calling me to minister. I'm really calling, seeing God work in this way. You know what? Just finish this first. And then, then you can go do that. And I've seen time after time where people will give in to that, the whim of their family, just to please them, just out of the goodness of their heart. Because maybe their family, their friends, their parents oppose what God wants them to do. And being a Christian, especially a new Christian, it's kind of like, well, I don't want to be, create a lot of conflict. I don't want to cause problems. So you know what, I'll, I'll wait for my husband to come around or I'll wait for my wife to come around or you know, I'll wait until my mother changes her mind or I'll wait for this or I'll wait for that and then, then I can take care of what God wants me to do. See, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, I just want to say it right up front, you're not going to get along with everyone. You're not. It's not that you shouldn't be loving. It's not that we shouldn't be considerate. It's not that we shouldn't be caring. We should be even more of that as a Christian. But if we're true followers of Jesus Christ, some people are going to be offended by that. Some people are going to be offended by what we call the truth and we know to be the truth. They may look down and say, oh, you're trying to be superior. You're trying to be self-righteous. You're trying to do this. You're trying to do that. Come on, come on back with us. Do what we used to do before. You used to be fun to hang out with. And for whatever reason, we have to expect that there's going to be some conflict. And that's uncomfortable for most people. But here's the bottom line, beloved. Either you are going to have harmony with God and friction with some people, or you're going to have harmony with people and friction with God. You can't have both. And I would just venture to say this, if there is no conflict with any person in your area of life because of your faith, I would ask that you really consider your own faith in this principle very carefully. In Matthew 10, verse 34 to 39, Jesus said this, Don't forget, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I bring a sword. But I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus knows, Jesus knows that, that faith is sometimes something that can divide families even. He already knows that. See, that's how serious Jesus is about following him. He's saying that, you know what, this may mean conflict with your loved ones. It may even lead to the severing of a relationship because of Christ. Are you willing to risk that conflict with someone you love in order to help God save his or her soul? Are you willing to follow Jesus into battle no matter what or who decides to stay home?
you love him more than anything else. Secondly, he says there in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You have to bear your cross. I mean, this is a radical statement. Once again, Jesus was asking his followers to do something that he himself would have to do eventually. He was planning to do it literally. In John chapter 19, verse 16 and 17, we read, So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, Golgotha. We have to bear a cross. I love some of the music that Michael W. Smith writes. And he wrote this song many years ago. It's called Cross of Gold. I just want to read the lyrics for you because, you know, when we think of a cross, we think of something totally removed from what it meant back then. It was an instrument of death. But many of us have a gold cross or something we hang around our neck or on a piece of jewelry. And here's what he writes in this song He says, Where do you stand? What is your statement? What is it you're trying to say? What's in your hand? What's in your basement? What's in the cards you don't play? Are you holding the key? Or are you intending to pick the lock of heaven's gate? It's confusing to me, the message you're sending, and I don't know if I can relate. The chorus says this, what's your line? Tell me why you wear your cross of gold. State of mind? Or does it find a way into your soul? Is it a flame? Is it a passion? A symbol of love living in you? Or is it a game? Religion and fashion? Some kind of phase you're going through? We all travel the extremes from cellar to rafter looking for a place in the sun. So I'm trying to see what you're headed after. But I don't know where you're coming from. For some, it's simply something to wear around your neck, a chain, jewelry. It's decoration. It's an icon, a proclamation. An icon of what? It means a lot more than that to me. See, that's a statement that is so telling of our society today. See, when he said, bear your cross... That is something that in his original hearers, when he said that, they knew exactly what he was talking about. It's an instrument of death. I mean, sometimes when these people, his followers, went down to Jerusalem to buy food or dinner or visit a friend, they would hear the clanking of armor and a contingent of Roman soldiers leading somebody, a man, to bear his own cross. And immediately they knew that that man was going to his death. There was no hope for him. It was such a shameful thing to be crucified in Christ's time. It's a long, tortuous death reserved for the most hardened criminals. And that's what his hearers would have heard when he said that. That's what they would have pictured. And to many, that image is offensive. And it was offensive to them. None of them would have imagined, as many people do today, that to bear their cross might mean something as silly as dealing with a mother-in-law who won't mind her own business or a misbehaving child. They wouldn't have thought that. 
See, Jesus wasn't referring to some unique trial that we have in our life. Bear your cross means the very same thing to every man and woman. It means be willing to die. It would have clearly indicated a spiritual call to suffering and death. And that's a dramatic point that Jesus is making here. It's an important principle of discipleship. He had told us that, you know what, we must love him more than our family and our friends. And then he says, you know what, we must love him even more than we love ourselves. In fact, we must love him so much that we'd be willing to die, to surrender our very life to follow him. What does it mean that we need to be ready to be put to death? Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. We've read this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I mean, God isn't asking us to put to death anything good. We're putting to death that which leads to death, sin. And when we do that, it ultimately leads to life. Galatians 2.20, remember what Paul said? I have what? Been crucified with Christ. And it's I, no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me and through me. See, he's trying to get them to understand this key principle and, you know, we need to understand when we give up our, our tight grasp, our tight hold of our own life, we discover life as it was meant to be lived. When you die to yourself, really, you, you find yourself. <laughs> Everything becomes clearer when you lay aside your own personal goals, your own desires, your own ambitions. See, that's when God comes and he will reveal his goals and his desires and him, his ambitions for you and through you. A.W. Tozer says this, In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. See, too often we want to be saved, but we want to insist that Jesus do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement. I got rights, I got this, I got that. We just want Jesus to meet our felt needs. And so we remain king in our own little kingdom of our soul. And we wear our little tinsel crown with the pride of Caesar. We can't understand why it's hard to lay our life down for Christ. It feels upside down. It feels backwards. It feels wrong. But that's what he calls us to do. Deny ourselves. Thirdly here, he says, forsake all you have. Uh-oh. Forsake all you have. He says in verse 33, whoever of you does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciple. Once again, Jesus dishes out a hard bargain. What does he mean, forsake all I have? I mean, does this mean you have a giant garage sale? You sell everything, including the house, everything you possess? Your kids' bikes, your toys, brand new computer, all that stuff you got for Christmas, it's all got to go. You got to forsake it all. 
I'm willing to endure some conflict with family, you might say. I'm willing to die to my own selfish desires. But now you want my boat? You want my car? Come on. See, this is what I mean by taking this to the literal extreme. And yet, to ignore any literal sense of this interpretation could also be a mistake. We need to look at things from God's upside-down perspective, which always puts the spiritual before the physical. We need to look to Jesus' life for some help. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said this, Matthew eight nineteen and 20, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, this is how literally Jesus lived out this principle in his own life. He didn't have a home. (laughs) We don't read about anywhere where Jesus possessed anything except maybe his tunic and his cloak. Obviously, sandals probably on his feet. And yet Jesus visits with Mary and Martha in their home and various times in the Bible he instructs us how to show hospitality to strangers. I mean, stop and think about this. If Joseph Joseph of Arimathea would have sold everything he had, he couldn't have bought Jesus' burial tomb. So he's not telling us literally you can't own anything. That's not the principle here. Jesus wants us to dig deep and grasp that principle behind his words. What's it mean to forsake all you have? It could literally be translated this way. Surrender your claim to that. Say goodbye to it. How often do we say things like, yeah, we painted our house the other day. How'd you go on the trip? Oh, we drove our car. That's my husband. That's my career. We all do that. And I know that's kind of nitpicky. But see, we need to, as a disciple of Christ, understand that all of this, everything we own is under the ownership of Jesus Christ if we follow him. I don't know if you ever heard this story, but I I was just cracked up when I heard this. Um, There's a story of a woman who's working hard one day, and she had a long day, and she decided to take a trip down to the local mall and just kind of splurge on some things she doesn't usually splurge on. So she found a uh, Mrs. Fields cookie place. She ordered a whole bag of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. Then she headed over to the local Starbucks there and got a grande latte, blah, 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 you know, and sat down, got the USA Today and laid it out on the table sat down to enjoy her little cookies and her coffee. A couple minutes later, a man sat down across from her at the same table. She's reading her paper and munching on her first cookie. All of a sudden, she heard rustling in her cookie bag on the table. She lowered the paper and looked over. Folding the top of the paper down, she thought she saw the man's hand pull out of the bag. 
and he popped the cookie in his mouth. She thought, wow, that's kind of abnormal. That isn't possible. He wouldn't take any of my cookies. What's he thinking? All of a sudden, she heard the cookie bag rustle again. This time, she caught him in the act, swiping one of her own cookies. He didn't seem concerned at all. He just reached in. He took another and another. She would eat a cookie. He would eat one all the time with a broad smile on his face. The lady began to grow furious. But she was afraid to confront someone who would so blatantly steal her food. Finally, there was only one cookie left in the bag. They both reached for it at the same time. Came out of the bag, each hanging on to their half of the final cookie. Smiling once again, the man broke off half and gave it to her. And he ate the other half. Sat there with this big grin on his face. The woman was so angry, she just grabbed her newspaper, grabbed her purse up from the table. She walked away, great huff. Just She walked back to her office. She opened up her purse to put the newspaper in it. There was her bag of cookies that she bought. <laughs> the man hadn't been eating her, her cookies. She'd been eating his. And he was nice enough even to share the last one with her. See, we have to be reminded that we boast of our future. We boast of our possessions. We boast of our plans, our cookies. <laughs> and in the process, sometimes we forget the passage of Scripture that says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, Jesus is asking this simple question of us. Are you willing to give up anything to follow him? Not only must you love him more than your family, not only must you love him more than your home, your bed, your comfort, See, he's not guaranteeing you any of that. That's not the follow me package. He doesn't have anything like that. And it enables us to demonstrate God's love to others in a tangible way. But it also reminds us that everything we have is a gift from him. We see this in the first church, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one heart, one mind. No one claimed any of his own possessions, but they shared everything they had. Last One here, quickly, count the cost. Verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. After he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And then he gives the illustration of a king going into battle. See, he he told us the price, potential conflict with loved ones. A decision to die daily to selfish sins. A willingness to forsake all. To let go, or the claim at least, of our own material possessions. And now Jesus is saying, you know what? You need to add up these costs. You need to decide whether or not you can pay the price. You're willing to pay the price. See, Christ is not asking us to pay the price of salvation. That's not what he's doing. That's already been paid. That's a free gift. If we repent, we turn to him. We believe in what he did on the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins, that he died, that he was raised on the third day. 
We put our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. That's our salvation. But he's saying, don't think that it's just the rest of your life. You just get to live for yourself. I mean, have you ever made a purchase of something that you didn't need? I have, multiple times. And it's a reminder every time you see that thing. Why would I buy that stupid thing? I don't even use it. You know, we have to be reminded that we live in, in, a, in a world that is just temporary. That you know what? This is, this is something that, that Jesus said in John 10, 17, 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, not only, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I mean, Gideon didn't have to worry that one of his soldiers would turn back halfway through the attack. Because he knew that they were committed, wholly committed to the mission. In the same way God is looking for disciples, he's looking for followers who have decided to give up everything and follow him into enemy territory. And we live in enemy territory every day, beloved. And he concludes here in verses 34 and 35 of Luke 14, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. See, after stating all these requirements for discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to come to Christ, he gives this warning, he gives this explanation. And in Bible times, salt wasn't just something that you put on your French fries. It was a preservative. They would wrap their meat in salt because it preserved it because they didn't have GE. They didn't have the refrigerator. Kind of the modern day equivalent of beef jerky, you might say. It preserved it. And if you're being a salty Christian, so to speak, here's what happens. Your lifestyle will stimulate in others a thirst for God. They'll watch you. They'll watch how you live. Sure, they might laugh at you along the way, but when they watch you and wonder, boy, what, what, what is it with this person? What makes this person tick? Where does this person go every Sunday at 9 o'clock in the morning? religiously every week. Where do they go? What do they, what do they live? How do they, how do they live their life? See, a true follower naturally becomes like, becomes a disciple, becomes like his teacher. And see, that's what Jesus ultimately wants from us. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, was basically the outcome of what it meant to live as a committed follower of Christ. It says in verse 13, now when they saw, who? The people in the crowds, the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, just like you, just like me, just like Gideon. It says they were astonished. And then it says this, and I love this. It says, and they recognized that they had been with who? Jesus. And my question to you, is when you walk out these doors every week, does your coworker, does your family member, do people recognize that you have been with Jesus? I mean, do you want to be like one of Gideon's 300, a man, a woman who will stand in the gap 
for Christ. Be his disciple and live that effective Christian life that we're called to live. Because you know what? A little salt makes a big difference. Have you ever had bland food? I'm sure you had. You know, you put a little salt on bland food. Boy, it just awakens your taste buds. God can do a lot with a little. It starts with you. It starts with me. Soon one disciple becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16. John Wesley said this many years ago, Give me a hundred men who love God with all their hearts and fear nothing but sin, and I will move the world. That's still true today. Um, You know, don't ever think that you can't be used of God. Warren Wiersbe said this, you can never be too small for God to use, only too big. Our pride gets in the way. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for this message that really lays out the commitment that you call us to. This isn't easy. This isn't something we can just go home and do on autopilot. We are desperately in need of your help each and every day to live this Christian life the way you desire us to live it. And the minute we rely on our flesh, the minute we think that we can do it in and of ourselves, we find out all too soon that we fail, we sin. And so, Lord, I pray for each heart here, each believer here, that they would heed the call that you're calling, that you're laying upon their heart to live in such a way that we affect lives around us for time and for eternity. Lord, if there's anyone here today who is yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ for their salvation... They're not a disciple of Christ. They're not a follower of Christ. They're still holding on to their crown and their own throne. I pray, Lord, that you would strip them, that you would show them their need of a Savior as only you can and allow them to cry out a desperation of their heart. Lord, be merciful to me, a a sinner. Save me, Lord, from the sin that holds me captive. That's a prayer that God will answer if it comes from a sincere heart. And so, Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. Pray you bless our fellowship over in the fellowship hall afterwards. We ask you to bless this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close.